Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. House Democrats pass a bill to expand abortion access. Republicans are pushing back. Question remains, is there enough support to get this bill to the president's desk? This is extreme. It nationalizes abortion for all nine months, making America just as radical as China, North Korea. An investigation finds that the Secret Service deleted text messages from around the time of the J6 Capitol breach. Messages deleted after the watchdog asked for them. Why'd they do it? President Biden makes his first visit to Saudi Arabia. A highly scrutinized trip filled with several announcements. We'll tell you what happened. Unions are typically associated with protecting workers' rights, but one asked Southwest Airlines to fire a worker over her pro-life views. Now both of them have to pay big money. Travelers stranded, plans stifled, as flight cancellations and caps continue and summer getaway dreams turn into dead ends. A U.S. airline captain says it will only get worse in the years to come. WNBA star Brittany Griner was back in court again today, despite already pleading guilty to drug charges last week. Find out what a criminal lawyer says about her legal team strategy. Just weeks after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Democrat lawmakers are trying to restore it. On Capitol Hill today, the Democrat-controlled House passed a bill to make accessible abortion the law of the land. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. The debate over the federal government's role in abortion is once again on full display. So I lived the days before abortion was safe and legal. Some women died because they sought these dangerous methods on their own. We are a nation of equal opportunity, not equal outcome. We know that abortion is equal outcome. Give those children the opportunity to live. House Democrats passed two bills today in response to the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. It would require all 50 states to allow abortions, drawing staunch criticism from conservatives. This is extreme. It nationalizes abortion for all nine months, making America just as radical as China, North Korea. In addition to making abortion access the law of the land, the so-called Protecting Women's Health Act calls parental consent for abortions an obstruction to abortion services. That from the, the message from the House Democrats and our groups here today is we are not going back. Lead Democrats pushing to expand abortion access nationwide held a rally on the Capitol steps to bolster support. More than a dozen states have already implemented abortion bans, and half of the country is expected to have abortion bans enacted in the weeks and months ahead. A second bill passed today would allow people to travel out of state to seek an abortion if it is banned in their home state. Congress has the authority and the responsibility today to protect people from these unconstitutional efforts to prevent or restrict, impede, or otherwise to punish people traveling to another state to obtain a legal abortion. But one Republican congressman views this issue from a different angle. Creates an open door for women to be preyed upon by traffickers and does nothing to protect minors who are transported by predators across state lines to obtain abortions. 
This effort today by House Democrats is simply just a messaging tool, a way for them to court more voters who align with their policies. I say this because these two bills will not pass the Senate. As a matter of fact, the Senate just recently failed to pass a bill to nationalize abortion, so Democrats' efforts here to expand abortion access is stalled in Congress. In addition, House Democrats are next week prepared to vote on a bill to protect contraception and codify same-sex marriage. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. More updates on the 10-year-old Ohio rape victim. The Indiana abortion doctor has been cleared by her employer of any privacy violations, but there are still details in this case that aren't adding up, especially around the rape suspect. Dr. Caitlin Bernard in Indiana performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. She also broke the story with a local newspaper. On Wednesday, Fox News reported that Bernard's employer, Indiana University Health, had filed a HIPAA violation against her for discussing a patient's private information with the media. But today, her employer issued this statement. IU Health conducted an investigation with the full cooperation of Dr. Bernard and other IU Health team members. IU Health's investigation found Dr. Bernard in compliance with privacy laws. There are still a lot of unclear factors in this story. The abortion reported by Dr. Bernard mentioned a 17-year-old rapist, but this week a 27-year-old man, who's allegedly in the country illegally, confessed to having sex with the little girl. It's unclear why the abortionist listed the alleged rapist as a 17-year-old minor. Telemundo claims to have found the mother and talked to her. They published this interview with subtitles in which the alleged mother defends the man who confessed to having sex with her daughter. La niña vivía aquí también. Sí, pero ella está bien. Todo lo que están diciendo en contra de él es mentira. Ya. Y la niña, eh, usted es familiar de la niña. Es mi hija. It's not clear whether this woman really is the mother or why she's defending her daughter's alleged rapist. Some are raising questions about the relationship between the suspect and the family. The suspect, Gerson Fuentes, has reportedly been living in Columbus, Ohio for the past seven years, working in a cafe. He is currently being held on a $2 million bond and could reportedly be arraigned next week. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Turning now to an investigation into the J6 Capitol breach, which has found that the U.S. Secret Service deleted text messages sent on the day of the breach. Their deletion is being brought into question, but also the time that it happened. Joseph Kafari, the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security, told lawmakers in a letter this week that a number of texts from January 5th and January 6th, 2021, were erased as part of a device replacement program. The DHS is the Secret Service's parent agency. The Secret Service deleted the messages after Kafari's office requested the records as part of its evaluation of the events at the Capitol. The top spokesperson for the Secret Service challenged the report. He said the inspector general asked for the texts for the first time on February 26th after the pre-planned system migration was well underway. And that during the process, data on some phones was lost. Senator Rob Portman, ranking member of the Senate Committee for Homeland Security, said he is deeply concerned by the letter. And President Biden is in Saudi Arabia, meeting with the country's crown prince and the king. The meeting comes as the president faces criticism for ignoring the Middle Eastern country's human rights abuses. Here are the details. 
Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the presumed heir to the throne, welcomed President Biden at a royal palace in Jeddah on Friday. There, Biden also met with King Salman and top Saudi ministers. Earlier on Friday, Saudi Arabia announced that they will open their airspace to all civilian aircraft, a decision welcomed by Biden. That is a big deal, a big deal. Not only, not only symbolically, but substantively, it's a big deal. It means Saudi airspace is now open to flights to and from Israel. This is the first tangible step on the path of what I hope will eventually be a broader normalization of relations. Speaking after an hours-long meeting, Biden announced that the U.S. has agreed to withdraw peacekeeping troops from a strategic Saudi island and work together with Saudi Arabia to deepen the Yemen ceasefire, and that Saudi Arabia will invest in U.S.-led 5G and 6G networks. Biden also said he had a good discussion with Saudi officials on ensuring global energy security and oil supplies. And that will begin shortly. And, and, uh, and I'm doing all I can to increase the supply for the United States of America, which I expect to happen. The Saudis share that urgency. And based on our discussions today, I expect we'll see further steps in the coming weeks. The highly scrutinized trip to Saudi Arabia comes as critics accuse the president of ignoring the kingdom's human rights abuses as he tries to reset a frosty relationship. During his presidential campaign, Biden had promised to make the country a global pariah after the murder of journalist and Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi. A U.S. intelligence report found that bin Salman approved the murder. Biden said he brought up Khashoggi during the meeting and that bin Salman said he was not personally responsible for the death. Many analysts believe Biden is visiting Saudi Arabia in the hopes that the country will boost oil production to help bring down prices. But the White House has not officially said that is the reason. The president has repeatedly defended his decision, saying his administration wants to lead in the region and not create a vacuum for Russia and the Chinese regime to fill. Biden will continue to meet with leaders in the Middle Eastern region over the weekend. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Now to the southern border. Citing a lack of action by the federal government, a group of local and national leaders today urged states to use their powers to declare an invasion at the southern border. What are they saying, and what challenges does that argument face? NTD's Iris Tao has more. And states do not have to be a passive victim of a failed federal government. Accusing the Biden administration of failing to address the border crisis, more than a dozen Republican lawmakers and sheriffs from Texas are urging border states to take matters into their own hands. I'm going to tell you the way it is. There is an invasion. That by declaring an invasion by drug cartels at the southern border, which should give them additional powers to deport illegal immigrants. And just in the past few months, our office was involved in seizing more than a million fentanyl pills just in Arizona alone. Enough fentanyl to kill the entire state of Arizona and Washington, D.C. The Constitution recognizes the power and the ability of states to protect themselves from an invasion. And that's what Arizona, Texas and other states need to do. The Friday call on Capitol Hill comes after multiple Texas counties declared the border situation an invasion and called on Governor Greg Abbott to do the same. But critics say that would be racist and would also equate those seeking asylum with military attackers. 
but they're being sent by the cartel. Yet a sheriff from Texas says such a declaration targets the cartels, which he says are sending in illegal immigrants purposefully. And the border is being cluttered by the cartel. It's being cluttered by these large groups of people that tie up the border patrol, tie up the state resources, tie up the county resources, and therefore the cartel gains the operational control of the border. And I asked Congressman Jody Arrington for his thoughts. Do you think such a move of declaring an invasion can stand its legal ground? I think the Constitution is clear and explicit. And in Article 1, when there's imminent danger to those states, they have the right of self-defense. Meanwhile, President Biden this week touted efforts to disrupt fentanyl and human trafficking while urging more help from Mexico. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Now to workers' rights. Unions are typically associated with protecting workers, but in a recent case, a jury found that a union and an airline discriminated against a worker for her views on abortion. And they have a big price to pay. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. There's a federal law that says airline employees have to pay union dues, whether they like it or not. Mike Mix, president of National Right to Work Foundation, said it all goes back to the 1930s. The federal labor policy was created under the Roosevelt administration. One of the things they did there, and it was just an absolute power grab for the unions, they said that workers had to join unions in order to work, and they had to pay dues. In 1963, the Supreme Court thought forced membership was too extreme, but the court still allowed unions to get employees fired if they didn't pay their dues. Forcing someone to pay for something they don't want, never asked for, and didn't vote for, seems to me to be a pretty clear violation of just basic individual freedom in America. The foundation recently won a case on behalf of a former Southwest Airlines flight attendant, Charlene Carter. Carter, who is a Christian and pro-life, challenged Transport Workers Union of America president, Audrey Stone. She claims Stone used union dues to promote abortion. Charlene got in a debate uh, with the union official uh, using social media. Mick said Southwest fired Carter, but not because she didn't pay union dues. In this case, they were saying because Charlene was harassing the union official that somehow that was a violation of work policy and that she had to be fired, and the employer complied with that. Carter immediately filed a lawsuit. She claimed that Southwest and the union discriminated against her because of her religious beliefs against abortion. Southwest and the union argued to the court that Carter's social media posts weren't protected speech. But the jury agreed with Carter and awarded her $5.3 million. The attorney for Transport Workers Union of America, Local 556, said in an email to NTD that the jury's decision wasn't consistent with the factual evidence presented and that the jury must have misunderstood the court's instructions. NTD reached out to Southwest Airlines, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And more in aviation news, summer travelers face mounting flight cancellations and new limits on flights as demand rises and the industry tries to rebuild itself after the pandemic. But is that all it is? We dig into the factors driving these disruptions with Jason Kunish, a U.S. airline captain, and I spoke with him earlier today. Jason Kunish, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Over in London, Heathrow Airport has announced a 100,000 passenger cap per day. 
They're asking airlines to stop selling tickets for now for the summer. They're saying it's about demand, but is it also about staffing shortages as we're seeing in the U.S.? It is. It's both, actually. You're not just seeing it in Heathrow. You're seeing it other places in Europe, Amsterdam to name one specifically. It's a rise in demand and it's uh, a leftover of the COVID shutdowns, the staffing shortages that have led uh, come from that. And I think also a mismanagement of resources uh, that's affecting the travelers now and these, these shutdowns, the, uh, the capping of passenger seats. How could these caps affect American travelers? Well, it's going to raise uh, ticket prices, number one. It's also going to decrease the, uh, the service that a lot of these airlines offer passengers. So much today in, in, in today's competitive aviation world, the only difference between one airline and another, not just is price, but the service and the frequency of these travels. And so what we're seeing now is because all airlines can only fly so many seats on a jet, and therefore it's every every ticket is divided in the price by how many seats and how many passengers are on those seats if the airline caps the amount of people that are allowed on the airplane it's just going to rise everyone else's uh ticket prices affecting everybody and over in the u.s airlines have cut about 15 percent of summer flights is it the same factors that have led to that it is uh it's staff shortages you know back over the pandemic over 400,000 U.S.-based airline employees, pilots, flight attendants, tech people, everyone, top to bottom, uh, were let go, either through early retirements, firings, furloughs, what have you. And it takes a very long time to get those people back. So we're, we're seeing that now. Also, we're seeing uh, a little bit of mismanagement. A lot of these airlines that are running these, these big operations are using software that's antiquated. It's from the 70s, 80s, uh, and that's the backbone of their, of their operation. So when there are heavy demand times, like over the 4th of July weekend, for example, uh, things melt down and it does affect everybody. The aviation industry reportedly has a shortage of 12,000 pilots. What do you think they should do if they want to meet this demand? Well, this pilot shortage has been at least 20 years in the making. You know, we all know about what happened in the 90s, you know, military pilots coming out. And then after 9-11, there was too many pilots. And, and now with the, in the United States, when you have a mandatory retirement age of 65, you have a very old and senior pilot group that's hitting that number. Um, and, and that's causing a lot of issues, number one. Number two, it takes years to safely train a pilot. And so this problem is not going to be fixed overnight. The 12,000 or so number, I, I don't know if that's per year over the next five years, but I know that uh, some of these major airlines, American Airlines, United, Delta, just to name a few, uh, they're reporting up to 50% of their pilot groups are going to be retiring or leaving the workforce in the next five years. So this problem that we're seeing now this summer is only going to be compounded in years to come. Do you think Congress needs to step in in some way or... I think that, uh, you know, I did hear that uh, some of our, our congressmen and, and other leaders, uh, Department of Transportation uh, and others, are saying, well, we're going to mandate that, that the airlines hire more people. Well, quite frankly, the pipeline is already wide open right now at the airlines. It's not a matter of the airlines wanting to hire more people. It's that there's not enough people to hire, and they still have to maintain a 
sufficient level of safety and competence and experience when they hire these individuals. And you can't just find those people, you know, because you want to. Those people have to be trained and you can't force it either. Um, it has to be, you know, someone has to want to do it. They need the aptitude to do it. Uh, and so it's, just, it's not a government mandate issue. Last month, American Airlines announced it's ending services to three regional cities. Do you think we'll see more of this in the future? Unfortunately, I do. And that leads to a degradation in passenger service. For example, uh, you know, between Philadelphia and Allentown, they've switched it from regional jets to buses. Same Philadelphia to Atlantic City. They're now busing people with the logo of the airline on the side of the bus. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we're going to see more of. All of the major airlines are facing this. It's not just American, it's United and Delta as well. And there's well over hun several hundred, I'll just put it that way, several hundred regional jets that are currently parked uh, in, in uh, airports around the world, or excuse me, the country, because of pilot shortages. And that's only going to be uh, more of a problem here going forward. So if this issue doesn't get resolved anytime soon, how do you think it will affect American travelers and the U.S. economy? The, we're we're going to see less service. You know, let's say there's a regional jet that holds 50 people and it goes three times a day to a city pair. Well, you're going to, instead of having three times a, a day that service, you're going to have one time a day because it'll be a larger jet. Still only two pilots are required, but you're going to get the same amount of people there just not when you want to go. Uh, and also you're gonna see ticket prices continue to rise because you're gonna to have to continue to train and, and adapt the system to take into consideration these, these uh, shortages. Jason Kunish, U.S. airline captain, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Airline staffing shortages and flight cancellations are causing another problem, lost bags. NTD's Sean Marshall has some tips to help you keep track of your luggage. In what's being called Armageddon, staffing shortages have caused a luggage problem at London's Heathrow Airport for weeks, most recently causing Delta Airlines to fly a plane from London to its hub in Detroit packed with 1,000 lost bags and zero passengers on July 11th. Problems have gotten so bad that they asked airlines to cap the number of passengers to 100,000 a day to limit lines, baggage delays, and cancellations. Travel blogger Jen Ruiz has some tips on navigating lost luggage. So the airline is liable for getting you actual, reasonable, verifiable, incidental expenses that come as a result of your bag being delayed. So if there's something that you need to purchase, if there's something that you can track back to your bag, keep those receipts when filing a claim with the airline. Ruiz also gave these tips. Keep expensive items in your carry-on. Prove the contents of your luggage with pictures and receipts of anything valuable. Get a tracking number by using the airline's app to track your luggage. Use AirTags to track your bags wherever they might go. And contact the company through Twitter, direct message, and post to avoid waiting in lines or on the phone. She also mentioned keeping an extra pair of clothes with you for emergency situations. Have a set of pajamas, have a new set of clothes for the next day so that worst case scenario, if you're at the airport, you know, it's late at night and you realize that this is happening, you can at least change into clean clothes at the hotel and tackle it fresh the next day. It makes a big difference. Um, everybody likes to have 
clean underwear to tackle their problems. <laughs> Willie Walsh, Director General of the International Air Transport Association, said Heathrow should have gotten its act together after airlines predicted a strong rebound in traffic. Sean Marshall, NTD News. New information on the death of Jalen Walker, the 25-year-old man who fled the police last month and allegedly fired a gun from his car. He was killed during a foot chase after ditching his vehicle. He was unarmed at that time. Today, officials told media how many gunshot wounds Walker has. Medical examiners in Akron, Ohio, say Jalen Walker's body had a total of 46 gunshot wounds. It's not clear how many bullets entered his body, as one bullet can cause multiple wounds. He suffered damage to most parts of his body, such as torso, limbs, and face. He died due to internal bleeding. The family's lawyer called it a senseless, brutal death. The killing sparked protests in the city of Akron shortly after it happened. Walker's hands were not swabbed for gunshot residue, such as gunpowder traces. The FBI has discontinued such testing because results are unreliable. And getting a religious exemption for the COVID vaccine while serving in the military has been very rare. The United States Air Force has approved fewer than 2% of applicants. Now a federal judge has stepped in. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Of the almost 7,000 U.S. Air Force members who applied for religious exemptions for the COVID vaccine, only 104 were approved. That's a denial rate of about 98%. Now a federal judge has gotten involved. U.S. District Court Judge Matthew McFarlane, who was appointed by former President Trump, is preventing the Biden administration from punishing airmen who remain unvaccinated for religious reasons but had their religious exemption applications denied. The temporary restraining order was filed on Thursday, and those airmen will be safe from punishment for two weeks. I don't think there's really any good reason to even be encouraging people to get vaccinated, um, let alone mandating it. I spoke with Hugh McTavish, who is a biochemist and immunologist and the author of COVID Lockdown Insanity. He's also running for Minnesota governor as an independent candidate. Unless a vaccine really prevents infection, which this one does not, and the disease is quite a bit deadlier than COVID, quite a bit deadlier than the flu, uh, which COVID is not quite a bit deadlier than the flu. Uh, in fact, at this point, it's less deadly than the flu. Unless those two conditions are met, um, neither of which is met in this case, that you should not be mandating vaccination, or really, I don't think, even encouraging it. Then I asked him about the risk of COVID for men and women between 18 and 30 who make up much of the military. They were at zero risk from the early strains, and uh, not zero. They were at very low risk from the early strains, especially if you're not obese, which not many people, you, you can't be morbidly obese and be in the military. The original strains, which were, I calculate, 1.7 times deadlier than the flu overall, but in the 18 to 30-year-old age group, they were less deadly than the flu. Meanwhile, approximately 62,000 unvaccinated Army National Guardsmen and Reserve soldiers are facing loss of pay as the Army prepares to enforce its vaccine mandate. Jason Perry, NTD News. Now some updates on the Elon Musk Twitter saga. A judge has set a date for the first hearing on Twitter's lawsuit against Musk. It'll be held next Tuesday, July 19th in a Delaware court. Twitter is trying to force Musk to follow through on his $44 billion bid to buy the platform. That would give Twitter stockholders about $54 per share. Right now, Twitter shares are at about $38, nearly 30% lower than that original offer.
In the first hearing next week, the judge will consider Twitter's request to fast-track the case and try it in four days in September. Usually, cases like this can take weeks. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the Drug Enforcement Administration seized a record-breaking number of fake pills in Southern California last month. Where did they come from and how much were they worth? Over to the West Coast, the DEA announced that they seized a record-breaking number of illicit pills in Southern California last month. Authorities say the pills were made for retail distribution and likely have a cartel-related origin. NTD's Daniel Hall reports. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration announced on Thursday a record-breaking seizure of approximately one million fake pills containing fentanyl in Inglewood, California. The investigation began in May, probing a drug trafficking organization in Los Angeles. According to the DEA, they believe the organization was linked to the Mexican Sinaloa cartel. On July 5th, a federal search warrant was executed for a residence in Inglewood. The search resulted in the massive seizure. The DEA reported that the fake pills had an estimated street value exceeding $15 million and were intended for retail distribution. In a press release, Bill Bodner, DEA special agent in charge, said, The deceptive marketing coupled with the ease of accessibility makes these small and seemingly innocuous pills a significant threat to the health and safety of all of our communities. A staggering number of teens and young adults are unaware that they are ingesting fentanyl in these fake pills and are being poisoned. According to the DEA, Los Angeles is a major hub for receiving bulk shipments of illegal drugs from the southwestern border. The shipments are then stored and broken down locally for redistribution to other areas of the country. The DEA is continuing its investigation of the drug trafficking organization. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And staying in California, the Jefferson Union High School District in San Mateo County is among just a handful of places in the country that offer teacher housing. More school districts could follow amid a national teacher shortage and rapidly rising rent costs. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. High school teacher Lisa Raskin moved out of a cramped apartment and into her own place this month. She pays $1,500 for the one bedroom with expansive views. It's also within walking distance to work. I don't know why they didn't do it sooner. Um, I think more schools really need to consider doing this or more districts really need to consider this model. Um, I think it shows educators that they value them as educators. I think that this is a good way to retain those educators. The region is exorbitantly priced and hostile to new housing. So the small school district just south of San Francisco opened 122 apartments for teachers and staff. As housing costs rise and school districts are struggling with teacher shortages, more and more are getting interested in, can we build workforce housing? You know, the one thing that school districts have is land. Educator housing complexes are rare, but more places could explore the concept. Teachers can get to know children and their families better if they live close by, but housing development can be politically and financially difficult. I mean, for one, you have a lot of opposition across California to new development, or particularly higher density development. And so right there, you're going to have issues that you're going to have to look into. Um, you know, I think there are other questions of 
is it the right role of a school district to own housing and to be a landlord in this way? Taylor Garcia worried she'd never be able to move out of a two-bedroom. She now lives in a three-bedroom with her husband and two children. It has a lot more space, um, more closet space, more space for the kids and their things. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just been so beneficial for all of us. San Francisco Unified School District plans to break ground in August on an affordable 134-unit complex for educators. It could be ready to lease in 2024. Andrew Thomas, MTD News. And now to the issue of mental health. Beginning tomorrow, anyone in the U.S. will be able to pick up the phone, dial 988, and talk, text, or chat with a trained mental health counselor. But there are some concerns that many states aren't ready for what's expected to be an influx of calls. Mandy Gaither has more. Three numbers, 988, a direct line to a trained crisis counselor. It really treats mental health on par with physical health, just like we have 911. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline started in 2005, but as a 10-digit number. In 2020, the call line received 3.6 million calls, chats, and texts. That number is expected to double in this first year as the number switches to an easier-to-remember three digits. The number that you call is the therapeutic intervention, unlike 911, which is more of a dispatch center for medical problems. But with more than 200 call centers nationwide already stretched thin, some mental health groups are worried 988 could exhaust resources and result in longer wait times and dropped calls. Officials acknowledge the lifeline isn't expected to be fully staffed at rollout. Dr. Christine Yu Moutier, chief medical officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, says it's crucial for states to get behind the local crisis centers and back mental health resources. This will be a process of a build, and it's already been happening for, you know, for months to years at this point. Moutier says easy access to mental health help is critical to save lives. In the great majority of cases, suicidal ideation is reduced, distress is reduced, and oftentimes individuals are ready to take that next step. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. WNBA star Brittany Griner was back in a Russian courtroom today as her trial continues, even though she already pled guilty to drug possession charges last week. I talked to criminal and injury attorney Ari Shemolian. Shemolian says the plea deal merely changes the course of the trial instead of ending it. At this point, the case has transitioned more of focusing whether or not she's guilty rather to mitigation material to try to lessen her sentence. Griner's legal team today presented a letter from a U.S. doctor recommending she use medical cannabis to treat pain. Shmulian doesn't see this as any kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, but says it could still be useful when it comes to sentencing. Recreational use of marijuana in Russia is not permitted. The defense is hoping that this is going to lessen any type of prison or jail exposure. Griner is looking at 10 years in prison. Her trial is scheduled to resume on July 26th. In golf, the British Open continued today with round two at the old course at St. Andrews. Tiger Woods, who struggled to an opening round score of 78 yesterday, did marginally better today with a three over 75 while managing a single birdie. 
but sitting near the bottom of the leaderboard with a 9 over score, he's well behind the projected weekend cut of even par. Elsewhere at the Open, Australia's Cameron Smith was a big winner today, posting an 8 under par to pass American Cameron Young. Young, who put up an 8 under yesterday to lead the way, shot a 3 under today and is two shots behind Smith. Other notables include Rory McIlroy, who was third after 13 holes today, while live golfer Dustin Johnson finished with a 5 under, putting him four shots behind the leader, Smith. In Olympic news, former American great Jim Thorpe was reinstated as the sole winner of the pentathlon and decathlon at the 1912 Olympic Games in Stockholm. The ruling by the IOC comes on the 110th anniversary of Thorpe winning those events, after which he was called the greatest athlete in the world by Sweden's King Gustav V. Thorpe was stripped of his golds a few months later though, when it was learned he previously had played minor league baseball. In 1982, the IOC decided to give back the gold medals to his family, yet his records weren't reinstated nor was his official designation as winner of the two events. The pentathlon features five events, fencing, shooting, swimming, running, and horseback riding, and Thorpe dominated the event, winning four of the five competitions and tripling the score of the second place finisher. The decathlon, meanwhile, is a 10-event competition that Thorpe won handily. Thorpe, who died in 1953, was voted the greatest athlete of the first half of the 20th century by the Associated Press. In addition to his Olympic prowess, Thorpe made it to the big leagues in baseball, was a two-time All-American in college football, and his success in professional football put him in the NFL's Hall of Fame. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, residents in Sri Lanka are celebrating after the president officially resigns. An interim leader has been appointed, but what happens next? And a Russian missile strike kills at least 23 people. The Ukrainian president calls it an act of terror. The city of 370,000 is still reeling from the attack. Stay tuned for the details after this short break. Sri Lanka's Prime Minister was sworn in today as interim president. That's after the former president fled abroad and sent in his resignation. The change in leadership follows mass protests sparked by the country's worst economic crisis in seven decades. Here are the details. I have received the letter of resignation sent by President Gotabaya Rajapaksa. The president legally resigned from his post on July 14, 2022. From now, the process of electing a new president will commence. Until that process is completed, the prime minister will be appointed to carry out the function and duties as stipulated in the Constitution. Sri Lanka's parliament speaker said he hoped to complete the process of selecting a new president in seven days and that parliament will reconvene on Saturday. Meanwhile, residents in the country's capital, Colombo, welcomed news of Rajapaksa's resignation. We won everything. And we are so happy today that he has resigned. And we feel that when we, the people, come together, we can do everything. We are the real power in this country. He had to resign because he brought us onto the streets. 
He made his own life for himself, but has left us stranded on the streets. We don't eat, we don't sleep, we just live here, lining up for gas to feed our children. Rajapaksa landed in Singapore on Thursday, having fled on a military jet along with his wife and two security guards. Street protests against Sri Lanka's economic crisis have simmered for months. Things came to a head last weekend when hundreds of thousands of people took over government buildings in Colombo. They blamed the Rajapaksa family and allies for runaway inflation, shortages of basic goods and corruption. As of Friday morning, hundreds of protesters remain camped outside of the presidential palace. Sri Lanka's geopolitical value has not only brought opportunities, but also China's attention. By expanding its control in the Indo-Pacific region, China absorbed Sri Lanka into its Belt and Road Initiative. Now, Beijing has become the country's biggest lender. Next, we take a closer look at how Sri Lanka found itself in this situation and how it might dig itself out from under a mountain of debt. Sri Lanka is located at a crucial junction, deep within the Indo-Pacific region. First of all, let's look at its transportation value. A port in the country called Hambantota sits less than 10 miles away from one of the world's busiest shipping routes and oil transport routes. The path links two of the world's most important oil transit choke points, the Strait of Hormuz and the Strait of Malacca. What's more, it's a deep water seaport, making it an ideal harbor for large warships. The value of that geography has drawn Chinese attention. Beijing wasn't subtle about its interest in the port either. A former Sri Lankan official told the New York Times that Chinese officials had said they expected Sri Lanka to let them know who is coming and stopping there. On top of its prime location, Sri Lanka is just a few hundred miles away from the shores of India, a major rival to China. In 2014, China looped Sri Lanka into its Belt and Road Initiative, a controversial project that critics call Beijing's debt trap diplomacy. Under the initiative, the Chinese regime offers billions of dollars in loans to developing countries earmarked for building up their infrastructure. But when countries fail to pay back the money, the regime takes control of their strategic assets, like ports that could prove useful for military purposes. In Sri Lanka's case, Beijing funneled billions of dollars into the country to help build up the Hambantota port. But the South Asian country was later forced to hand over control of the port to China on a 99-year contract after it failed to pay back its Chinese debt. Fast forward to today, Sri Lanka is facing a debt crisis, but some countries are lending a hand. Washington announced $120 million in grants for small and medium-sized enterprises in Sri Lanka. G7 member nations also voiced plans to help relieve Sri Lanka's debts. Neighboring India offered even more financial help. India has pledged over $4 billion in loans. It's also mulling over the possibilities of additional support, like a 500 million credit line for fuel. Comments from an international affairs expert may shed light on India's generosity. He says the country hopes to decrease Beijing's hold on Sri Lanka. And now to the war in Ukraine. There, a city far from the front line mourned its dead and cleaned its streets on Friday, a day after a Russian missile attack killed at least 23 people and wounded scores. Rachel Graham reports. This is the moment Russian missiles fell on a Ukrainian city far from the front line, captured on CCTV. 
The city of Vinnytsia, 125 miles southwest of Kiev, is home to around 370,000 people. On Friday, residents grieved for their dead and cleaned the streets, a day after at least 23 people were killed and scores more wounded in the attack. Ukraine said Thursday's strike on an officers' club had been carried out with caliber cruise missiles launched from a Russian submarine in the Black Sea. Ukraine's state emergency services said 71 people were hospitalized and 29 people remain missing, while three children, including a four-year-old girl named as Lisa, were among the dead. Lisa's mother remains in hospital, unaware of her daughter's fate for fear of the impact it might have on her recovery, said chief doctor at Venezia Emergency Hospital, Alexander Fomin. If we tell her now that her daughter has died, there will be no chance of her being released from hospital. If her blood pressure goes up even by 10 units, she will suffer from blood clots, stroke or heart attack. The body of the mother has gone through a meat grinder. Residents placed teddy bears and flowers at a makeshift memorial near the site of the strike. Rescuers and locals helped with the cleanup effort, shocked at what has taken place in their town. Business owner Ivan Cotiaro counts himself lucky no one was inside his premises at the time. A colleague ran outside onto the street or to the shelter. I don't know. You can see the result of what happened here. The colleague sustained injuries. He was found on the street. He has burns and is now being treated in the hospital. Ukraine said the bombed officers club housed commercial offices and a cultural centre with a public concert hall where musicians were rehearsing for a pop concert planned for Thursday night. A nearby medical centre was also destroyed. The attack was the latest in a series of Russian strikes in recent weeks, using long-range missiles on crowded buildings in cities far from the front, each killing dozens of people. President Volodymyr Zelensky called Russia a terrorist state and urged more sanctions against the Kremlin. Russia's defence ministry said the building was being used for a meeting between military officials and foreign arms suppliers. It has repeatedly denied targeting civilian areas. And over to Britain, which has declared a national emergency. Not because of politics or the pandemic, but because of the weather. Brits might meet with record-breaking heat next week. The highest ever recorded temperature in Britain is over 101 degrees Fahrenheit. That temperature was recorded at Cambridge University in July of 2019. Early next week, this record might be broken. Authorities issued a Level 4 extreme heat warning for parts of England. Level 4 is issued when a heat wave is so severe that it's too much for the health and social care system to be able to do much. British authorities say at this level, illness and death may occur among the fit and healthy, not just in high-risk groups. The highest temperatures are expected for Monday and Tuesday. And coming up, one antique store is reinventing itself to stay ahead of the game, leading the way with a new shopping experience. Stay tuned for more when we come back. Pandemic-altering consumer shopping habits, many retail stores face closures. 
to survive in this ever-changing business climate, one Chicago brick-and-mortar store is reinventing itself and creating a brand-new customer experience for the antique industry. Here's that story. In the 35th year of architectural artifacts, an antique store in Chicago, founder Stuart Grannon is pioneering a new business model in his new expansive location. He turned his store into a multiple-purpose space and leveraged modern technology to invigorate the shopping experience. You know, antique stores are kind of a staid, sort of uh, stagnant business a lot of times. We've always kept changing with the times, and also a lot of what we've done have, has set trends in the industry over the last 35 years. Robert Baum, partner of Architectural Artifacts, says the newly added hospitality component to the store is a first of its kind in the antique industry. The store is now equipped with a cafe and a restaurant and offers the space for multiple purpose functions. The new concept allows customers to wander around the store with their food and drink while appreciating or shopping for antiques. We're utilizing every square inch of this building and so rooms places, spaces, hallways, they're all sort of doing double and triple duty. So this can be a store where people are buying this awesome couch or a table. It could also be a meeting room where people are bringing investors or they're bringing their friends to play board games at the same time. And then it could turn around and at night be a party room for someone else celebrating like a, a wedding or a baby shower or something like that. A new trend the store is setting is the use of QR codes. When you scan a QR code next to an artifact, it takes you to a YouTube video about the history of the item. The QR codes uh, for the retail, there's no one really doing it in-house, inside of a store, like to learn about what's going on. Each one of these is unique, so for people to find out and get the individual stories from all these pieces, it's really just, uh, it's, it's an experience is really what we've created here. Offering unique artifacts from around the world is what Granin is successful at. One of Granin's personal favorites is a workman's bench with a few hundred years of history. It's got a live edge, it's maple. You'll notice it has a beautiful shape, lots of curves, very intentional cutouts, and it was from a violin factory in Italy. Granin's collection also includes a pair of 120-year-old French carousel lions from Buenos Aires, Argentina, that no one could get their hands on. Many dealers in Buenos Aires who wanted these but the shop was never open and the guy would never sell anything if he was open and he just liked me that day. Granin is confident that his new endeavor will give customers a renewed shopping experience of wonder and wonder in his antique store. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.